Thank you for joining the inaugural episode of the Price of Pain podcast. My name is Josh Crow, and I'm welcoming you to the first in a four-part series introducing Price, the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about who are the major players in Price and what Price does in pain research and in pain science. In this episode, we'll define chronic pain, or at least attempt to, and talk a little bit about its prevalence and, and even touch on how pain is experienced differently amongst various subgroups. My guest today, Dr. Roger Fillingham, is a clinical psychologist. He's a distinguished professor at the University of Florida College of Dentistry and is the director of Price. In addition to that, in kind of on the same line of interest in his research, he's the director of the UF Center for Advancing Minority Pain and Aging Science. He's been continually funded by the uh, NIH since 1994. He's produced over 390 published scientific articles. He served as the president of the American Pain Society, the co-chair of the Federal Pain Research Strategy Disparities Work Group, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Interagency Pain Research Coordinating Committee. I think you're in for a real treat here. And if you'd like more information about Price itself or Dr. Fillingham's current work specifically, you can find that by following the links on our video podcast and on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Podcast or by checking into our Instagram page at Price of Pain Podcast. Let's go now to my conversation with Dr. Roger Fillingham. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. You know, you, you've come up through a, a clinical psychology background. Yep. And so as a prominent pain researcher, um, you know, I, th- I think it, one of the things that interests me is how you got to where you are now. And so... Um, walk me through that just a little bit. Um, you, you, you came out of Georgia, Mercer for your BA, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, then eventually headed off to UAB for my PhD. And, and I chose UAB because, you know, this was in the late 1800s. <laughs> no, I mean, this was in the 1980s when sort of behavioral medicine or medical psychology was first getting a a real groundhold, and I got very interested in that field, and and UAB was one of the places that was really doing it at that time. So uh, I went to UAB, and that's sort of how I got introduced to pain. One of the, uh, I had to find a job, right, an assistantship to pay the bills, and one of the opportunities was working in a, a multidisciplinary pain clinic there, uh, run by a guy named Dan Dolays, um, who's had a very storied career of running outstanding programs like that. And uh, and so I took an assistantship in that program and got introduced to uh, interdisciplinary and primarily behavioral management of pain. So I had that uh, clinical experience. But frankly, my research as a doctoral student had nothing to do with pain. It was on exercise psychology, and that was my real interest. Okay. Do you, do you have a background in sports? Nope. Okay. Well, I mean, I've 
played a little bit of sports. <laughs> Just recreation. I didn't know anything about uh, sports, but uh, I was interested in sort of how exercise influenced psychological processes and so on and so forth. And then the the two slowly came together. I, I did a one-year stint and a master's program where I needed to get a research project going, and I had read a book called The Psychology of Physical Symptoms, published in 1982 by Jamie Pennebaker, a longtime, very well-known psychologist uh, in the sort of somatic symptoms field. And, and I was just struck by how psychology could influence the physical symptoms that we feel, not the emotions that we feel, but the physical symptoms, and that was sort of news to me. So I did a little study on how distraction can influence exercise-induced symptoms. So I was getting into this, how does psychology influence physical symptoms? And, and when you say, if I could interject, when you say yeah. you know, exercise-induced symptoms, such as? Oh, uh, shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle soreness, muscle stiffness. So, um, what you know, essentially we had people do a running course doing either a distracting task or not, and then we asked them to report on their physical symptoms, and distraction reduced the amount of physical symptoms they had. Um, but then, you know, as you think about it, where can a psychologist make a living leveraging psychological interventions for physical symptoms, right? Not right. a lot of people go to the doctor and say, hey, exercise makes me really tired. Can you teach <laughs> me to be less? No. But a lot of people go to the doctor and say, I'm hurting, right? And so the application of these psychological principles to pain seemed natural, and that's one thing that attracted me to pain. So at that time, it, because, you know, people, people that, that may be listening to this probably have widely different perceptions on pain. Hmm. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, uh, particularly you know, with everything that's in the news about the opioid crisis and whatnot, people think, okay, well, when I experience pain, I need to go to the doctor to get something to take. Hmm. But as a psychologist, that, that's not what you're doing. You're, you're, you're not giving them something to take, uh, at least as a pill or, or something like that per se. So, you know, is that something that at the time when you were making that transition, how much of how much of that line of thought was going on? Was that kind of part of the zeitgeist at that moment or or is this kind of new, a, a new idea? Yeah, I would say the late 70s to mid 80s was in some ways the heyday of pain psychology. Uh, pain, a uh, behavioral treatment of pain was thriving. Um, a, a book came out by uh, Bill Fordyce, one of the uh, grandfathers of this field, Behavioral Treatment of Pain, in, in 1976. And that sort of ignited, in some ways, a revolution that maybe had already started. But, um, and so that, but, but we're not talking about the pain you feel when you stub your toe, or even the pain of a broken arm. We're talking about people who have chronic pain, that is, pain most days or every day for years. Um, and, and that's where psychology was really gaining a foothold. And where would you, is, is it easy to delineate between the two? So say, you know, I, uh, I jam my finger playing basketball. And well, obviously it hurts when I do it. And two months later, it still hurts. Is that chronic pain? Does that count as chronic pain yet? When, when does something that, that's an injury turn into chronic pain? What's the difference? 
Yeah, it's, it's easy to pretend we can delineate between the two, right? And people have used arbitrary cutoffs. If it lasts six months or longer, then it's chronic pain. Some people say three months or longer. Um, a, a more evolved definition might be pain that, that lasts beyond the normal healing time of whatever the injury is. One definition I've heard that I like is pain that has outlived its usefulness. I like that. Right? So pain... Uh, we need pain, right? Um, and there are rare uh, people who are born without the ability to feel pain, and they tend to die young because they can't avoid and tend to tissue damage when it occurs. Um, and so pain is is an adaptive, useful thing, but that typically refers to acute pain, right? Mm -hmm. When we injure, our, you know, we break an arm or we burn a hand, we know to get the hand off of the hot stove. Uh, we know to let the arm heal before we use it again. So um, pain is an important warning sign in its sort of physio normal physiological version. But um, I think what the field has realized over the past several decades is that kind of the underlying biology of chronic pain seems to be fundamentally different than the biology of acute pain, like stubbing your toe or the pain you feel immediately after surgery or something like that. Um, and, and that has maybe educated us as to why we've not been as effective in treating chronic pain, because we were pretending that whatever worked for acute pain would work just fine for chronic pain, but if these are completely different experiences mediated by different biologies, then we're going to need different treatments. Can you give some examples of, of the biologies that may be different? Obviously, that's ongoing. If, if we had it figured out, then I'd be talking to somebody else. But what are some ways that the two are different? At least yeah, so uh, maybe an example is um, in people with chronic pain, there's a lot of evidence now that areas of the brain uh, are shrinking. There seems to be some neurodegeneration. Um, exactly why that is and what's, what parts of the brain are shrinking, that is what actual cells are either going away or getting smaller, uh, is not completely clear at this point. But that seems to be a component of chronic pain, that both the function and even the structure of the brain changes uh, in many types of chronic pain, um, and, and that may have implications for treatment. It certainly lets us know uh, that chronic pain has some pretty significant systemic consequences. It, you know, it, it takes a toll on the body, including the brain, that we need to be aware of. Uh, and we wouldn't think the same thing of acute pain. We don't have any evidence that, you know, uh, uh, a stubbed toe or a broken arm is going to change how your brain looks or how it works. Right. So that kind of makes sense a little bit more the intersection of, of psychology now and pain. It, would it be safe to say that, okay, well, if, if we're noticing wear and tear on this structure or on this symptom as a result of pain, then obviously that structure or system plays a, a pretty significant role mm -hmm. in the pain. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that opened the door wide open for psychology was when the gate control theory was published. This is the most famous theory, the most important 
theory in the history of pain, I would argue. Um, and that was published in 1965 by Melzack and Wall. And, and it said several things, uh, but it revolved around this idea that there's a gate in the spinal cord. And it, a lot of people think of it as like a gate on a fence, but it really referred to a gate as in an electrical circuit. Mm -hmm. And how open or closed that gate is will control the flow of pain-related information that ultimately reaches the brain. And of course, the brain is where pain is experienced. Uh, and one of the things that can either open or close the gate is descending information coming down from the brain. That is, how we're thinking and feeling could close the gate. Hmm. And that tells us that psychology and psychological interventions could have a direct biological impact on the transmission of pain signals that ultimately reach the brain. So, and I guess, you know, pretty much everyone has, has heard of the, you know, the concept of mind over matter or, you know, in, in this respect. Um, but, but does this mean that there may be an actual physical connection to where you, the brain, not, not just focus, not, oh, you know, I, I don't see you, I don't see you, um, but an actual, you know, a, a, a physiological and biological mechanism that stops the signal from ascending the spinal cord to the brain? Yes. Okay. And I don't think we know the details of the exact chemistry whereby that happens. But um, first of all, we need to think of pain as a phenomenon in the brain, right? No brain, no pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so until the information reaches the brain and is processed in a way by the brain that results in the experience that we call pain, we're not going to have pain, no matter how horrible the things are that are happening out in our body, right? So it's got to get to the brain. And when you recognize that, um, that pain is created by an ensemble of neural activity in the brain, and we know that it's the same brain that we use to think and to feel and to look and to smell and all these things, it makes perfect sense that what else is going on, what we're thinking about, is not just sort of getting our mind off of pain, it's actually altering the nerve transmission that creates the experience of pain. So it's altering the biological footprint of pain, if okay. you will. So there's, there's a difference, if, if I'm understanding correctly, there's a difference between, obviously, if we're talking about a stub toe to the brain, the connection is nerves, mm -hmm. uh, amongst others. But in this case, nerves. So you're saying there's a, a difference between pain and just that electrical signal that travels up the nerves. These, these are two different concepts. Yes, yes. Pain is... Um, at least in my view, an emergent experience. That is, it, it comes out of a lot of different neural activity in the brain. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, that neural activity is greatly influenced by what's going on in the body, right? So if I have a large steel spike entering my leg at the rear and emerging <laughs> from my leg at the front, 
oh, that's going to drive some neural activity, right? And my it's driving some neural activity in me right now. <laughs> exactly, um, which is another interesting example. All right, so we can drive neural activity that looks like pain without doing anything physically to somebody. So there uh, was a study done, and I can't remember the authors, but several years ago where they had people who were anxious about going to the dentist. Okay. Uh, and they put them in a, an MRI machine, and they showed them videos of people getting dental treatment. And not only did these people report feeling pain, not just understanding that someone on the video was having pain, but mm -hmm. they themselves felt pain simply watching that video. But their brain activity looked like they were having pain, right? So is this kind of linked to the, obviously right now with social media, um, you know, across generations, you could see videos of people skateboarding and failing miserably. And I always think of when I look at these, you know, I want, some people seek these types of videos out, um, and that's um, kind of sadistic. But, but I guess, you know, when, when I watch this, even when you know it's coming, you kind of, there's a little bit of apprehension and there's a feeling, but it's not uncommon when the skateboarder does fall, wipe out. I physically wince, you know, there's a, there's a reaction to me. Is that, the, is that connected? Yeah, uh, I think that's part of it, right? So we have this behavioral response and to some degree emotional response as though we're going through the same thing. But then there's a subset of people, and it's probably a minority of people, who also actually feel the pain, hmm. right? It hurts them just like somebody, maybe not as much as it hurt the skateboarder, <laughs> right? But, but they still feel that phenomenon of pain. Hmm. Um, so, so it's very interesting. It's just another example of how pain ultimately is in the brain. Ordinarily, that's driven by something going on that's, you know, caused tissue damage in our body, but it doesn't have to be. And there are many instances where there is no tissue damage, and yet there seems to be substantial pain. So what drives, you, you mentioned how the, the, the pain is an experience, and, mm. and clearly in the subset that we were just talking about, it's, it's very different for some people than others and can be triggered by different things. So what are some of the things that can affect the differences? Um, you know, are, are there large groups for example, you know, there's there's always the the I guess the, the the social idea of like, oh well, you know, men are tougher than women and then you know the, the answer back to that is well, you know, women endure childbirth and would men be able to do that? Mm -hmm. So I mean can you can you nail it down to specific groups or are there you know what what guides this idea right now prevalently? Yeah, so uh, you, you can look at different groups, whether it's men and women, and we can talk about that. We've done a lot of work in that area. Um, uh, people from different racial and ethnic groups may experience pain differently. We seem to experience pain differently as, as we age. And so there are a lot of different factors that contribute. Uh, one thing we should recognize, though, is, is you can compare two different groups of people and say, on average, for example, and this is clear, on average, when you do pain sensitivity tests in the laboratory, women show greater pain sensitivity than men. Okay. Uh, and many people are surprised by that because women are the ones who uh, experience uh, labor pain. Um, 
But those are the findings on average. Now, I can't walk into a crowd and say, oh, there's a woman. She, by definition, is more pain sensitive <laughs> than that man right there, right? Mm -hmm. Because the variability within the group is much larger than the differences between the groups, right? So there's a huge range of pain sensitivities among women and a huge range of pain sensitivities among men, and those distributions overlap a great deal. Okay. But there are some consistent group differences that emerge, and, and it's not just sort of a, an academic or a cocktail party question, uh, do men and women feel pain differently? The burden of clinical pain differs dramatically. Women bear a far greater burden of clinical pain. What do you mean by that? Uh, so in most of the common chronic pain conditions, significantly more women than men are afflicted by those pain conditions. And often dramatically more women than men have conditions that are severe enough to need treatment. Um, and again, there are probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, it's interesting to note that most of the research that we've done on pain in non-human animals especially, but also in humans over the last century or so, has involved males. And I think for the longest time we were comfortable saying, okay, well, you know, the white male is a proxy for every other organism <laughs> for on the planet, right? And, and apparently that's not the case, right? Weird. Uh, and, and so because we haven't focused on these kinds of differences and the fact that um, even in mice and rats, there are pretty dramatic differences between sexes, not just in the amount of pain that they might experience, but in how that pain is determined and the biological mechanisms that are responsible for pain. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, that's increasingly appreciated now because policies have changed and we are commanded to look at that now, which is the only way to get scientists to do anything, apparently. So, so science has to represent all people now, huh? yeah, not, just, yeah. not just the white males. Okay. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, we're learning a lot more about uh, the nature of sex differences and how they might be clinically important, which we hope down the road will lead to more effective pain treatment for women and men. Okay, so we've talked uh, a fair amount about how pain is experienced um, and what could maybe drive that, but a lot of people that are listening probably aren't that privy to pain research. Hmm. So clearly you can't ask a mouse, you know, did that hurt? But is that enough to, I mean, when it comes to, to, to treating, or, or excuse me, to, uh, to researching and investigating pain in people who you can say, okay, um, you know, poking in the arm with this needle, mm -hmm. did that hurt? I mean, obviously a yes or a no, but how much did it hurt? How, how do you study this? And if it's different for everybody, then, then what, do you, what do you make of all this information? How, how, do you, how do you weed your way through all that? Yeah, I mean, it's really a critical question, and it's, uh, it's one of the challenges uh, in pain research. So we can study pain. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, it, it's, it's more challenging to study it in non-human animals because they can't communicate in, in a way that we can understand. Uh, in humans, we can 
uh, ask people to estimate how much pain they have using a variety of different scales. Probably the most common is the 0 to 10 scale, where 0 would mean no pain and 10 would be the most intense pain you can imagine or the worst pain you can imagine or something of that sort. Uh, and people in general are pretty good at estimating how much pain they have. Now, if I ask you about a pain and then you ask me about a pain and we give different numbers, we're never quite sure is it because the pain feels different to us or because the way we use numbers is different, mm -hmm. right? Does a seven mean something different to you than to me based on our experience and other factors? Um, so we're usually more confident comparing a person to themselves over time, right? So if you're a patient and you come into the clinic and today your pain is a 7 out of 10 and we give you some treatment and then a couple of weeks your pain is a 3 out of 10, I'm pretty confident that your pain is better than it was, mm -hmm. right? So comparing you to yourself uh, is easier than making direct comparisons between people. And that's why in some of our studies we need to study a large number of people because there are differences between people and how they apply these scales and how they think about their pain. And so we need to let that average out over a large sample as opposed to comparing two or three people in one group to two or three people in another. Right, yeah. right. And well, and so if, if that's the case and in, in, in it's more useful and if I'm if I'm paraphrasing this wrong please feel free to correct me but you're saying it's more useful to compare within a person so you give them a treatment see if this you know alleviates pain or maybe increases their pain um, but what about if you're if you're just looking at the experience of pain you, you had mentioned that you know chronic pain affects people what if you're just looking at those differences between groups you're not administering any kind of a treatment mm -hmm. you're just observing and trying to make comparisons between you know large groups of people of a certain type, say um, you know based on race or ethnicity or or sex or gender, whatever. Yeah, and that's that's very valid. It can be done. There have been a number of studies now that have really carefully looked at how well people are able to report on their pain. And again, on average, people are good at that. They can tell you how much pain they have with pretty good precision. And with a little bit of training, they get even better. Um, and then the other thing we can do is we can take, as you mentioned, large samples of people. So I, you know, we could study a couple of hundred men and compare them to a couple of hundred women. Let's say they all have back pain and we're trying to find out how that back pain experience might be different. Uh, and we can do that in one study and with large samples find some differences that look interesting. And then, of course, what we want to see is when somebody else does a similar study with a similar pain condition, do the results line up, right? And, and that's how, for example, I was talking about these um, gender differences in pain sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, there have been uh, tens, if not hundreds, of studies now done over time using different types of pain and different measures of pain and they while not unanimously and an overwhelming majority of those studies points in the same direction right okay and so when you get that kind of body of evidence bubbling up 
then you realize, oh, there's something here. This is a real difference uh, that we might want to explore further. What about cases where, you know, maybe somebody's pain is intermittent? You know, um, okay, I have, I have low back pain. Mm -hmm. um, bothers me when I wake up in the morning. It might be more accurate to say it bothers me later in the day. Uh, let's go with that. So mm -hmm. when I wake up, I feel pretty good. But, man, by 4 o'clock, my back's just screaming. And Well, if you're going to study them and you want to study that, that, I guess, instantaneous experience of pain, mm -hmm. does that mean you have to study them when they're experiencing low back pain at that moment? Or are there ways to get at some of those, those mechanisms that you were mentioning in the brain that, that, uh, that might be driving uh, their experience? Yeah, so there's probably a lot of answers to that question. I mean, one thing you can do is you can, and we don't just measure how severe or intense the pain is. We measure lots of other things. What does it feel like? What are the sensory qualities? Um, what are the temporal dynamics? That is, on a day-to-day -day basis, is your pain constant? Does it go up and down? Is it worse in the morning or in the evening? So this sort of... Um, what percentage of your day do you have pain? So we can characterize the pain really carefully. And then if we want to get even more detailed about that, we can have people, and with smartphones and other types of technology, we can ping them multiple times a day and mm -hmm. say, you know, report about your pain now. And if you do that for a few weeks, you get an enormous amount of information about how people's pain varies throughout the day and maybe from week to week and so on and so forth. Okay, and just to circle back really briefly, when you say some of the sensory characteristics, you know, like burning, stabbing, throbbing. Yeah. Okay. Yes, okay. yeah. Uh, because let's say we have two patients uh, at the doctor's office and they both say, well, my pain's a 5 out of 10. Right. And one of them says, yeah, it's a dull ache. And the other one says it's sharp and shooting and lancinating. Well, five out of ten sounds the same, right. but dull versus sharp and shooting and lancinating don't sound the same, right? So it may give us some clues that whatever's driving pain in those two people might be different. Okay. Yeah. And I just have one other question that, that has kind of been lingering in the back of my mind since, since we were making the segue from psychology into to pain research. But what about like emotional pain? Is this something that enters the, the equation in, in pain research? Um, you know, the uh, somehow you can, you know, you can have whether it be heartache or, you know, some of these these kinds of these kinds of concepts, um, you know, overwhelming depression, you know, these kinds of things. Um, does that fall under the same umbrella of pain research? I mean, can you obviously if you can look at somebody experiencing pain and, and for some people, they would empathetically experience that pain also, well, then there is some kind of a, a, emotional or, or psychological component that's that's not physically related. Does that cross over into emotion as well? Yeah, that that's a great question. And a colleague of mine here did some research on tweets a while back, thousands and thousands of tweets on pain. Okay. Uh, and one thing that struck me was that many of those tweets we're referring to emotional pain, you know, break up with somebody, heartache, as you say. Oh, so these are people that are tweeting about yes. their, okay, okay, yeah. I see. Um, Not and, mean tweets that are trying to elicit pain. Right. Oh, no, 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 no. No, this was <laughs> okay. just an observational study. We weren't <laughs> tweeting to hurt people. All right. All right. Um, and so, you know, in, in our everyday language, we refer to these kinds of emotional events as pain. Um, 
And, you know, in the pain field, we would make a distinction, but the distinction is not complete, right? And so if you, uh, I'd say at least a couple of things about that. One is uh, the definition of pain says that pain is uh, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. Not pain is an unpleasant sensory experience that sometimes has emotion. Hmm. No. By definition, pain includes an emotional component uh, that is, that unpleasantness is emotional. That's a a sort of an affective quality to the experience of pain. And even people who enjoy pain, they enjoy the unpleasantness of it, Hmm. right? That's pretty deep. Yeah. And so... Uh, there is this emotional component. And then when you go to the brain and you see the various brain regions and networks that get activated in the presence of pain, they overlap with the brain regions and networks that are activated by emotional experiences. So maybe we've had it right to some degree in referring to emotional upset as pain because there is this kind of overlap in the brain between emotion and pain and 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 pain by its very definition has that emotional quality Hmm. okay well you're clearly an expert on this stuff so that kind of brings us to where we are now yeah Um, you're at least let's go with this you're at least the smartest one in the room on this topic (laughs) (laughs) but um you know as i mentioned in in our introduction you're the director of the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at UF, at the mm-hmm. University of Florida. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not going to put on some facade that I don't know you, that you're not my boss, that you're not a mentor <laughs> of mine. Um, but I would like to talk a little bit about what that entails. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, since since we're early on in, in establishing this podcast, it, you know, I think it's probably important that if the podcast is presented by Price, that we let people know what Price is. Sure. And uh, so... There's, there's obviously been a development, you know, something the size of price doesn't spring up out of nowhere, but it's a center mm-hmm. within UF. So let's maybe start to unpack, and I hate that term, so I'm going to pretend like <laughs> I didn't just say it. Let's, let's spend a little bit of time detailing what is a center? What, what's the benefit of this as opposed to, to you and in, in your research? You, you've obviously done a, a multitude of research over, uh, you know, a long and distinguished history. Why a center? Why not do your own thing? Yeah. Um, so... Maybe I'll talk a little bit about um, the motivation for devoting a lot of institutional focus on pain, uh, and then we'll talk about how that plays out uh, in the formation of a center. And I think Eric has a, a slide there for us that shows us sort of the magnitude of pain as a public health problem. And this surprises a lot of people who are outside of the field. And so uh, the bars on this graph tell us the point prevalence. That is, if we went out today and talked to every person in the United States, it would take a while, but (laughs) if we asked every person in the United States, do you have pain, do you have heart disease, do you have cancer, so on and so forth, all the people who said yes to those questions would give us the point prevalence of each of those conditions. And you can see the point prevalence of pain exceeds the combined prevalence of all of these other conditions, cancer, AIDS, heart disease. Uh, 
So pain affects more people in this country than you would imagine. It's estimated that somewhere around 100 million people in the United States experience some form of chronic pain. That's a, that's a third of everybody. That's a third. Including yes. children and older people, a third of everybody. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's fair to say that not all of those people are disabled by pain. Many of them are leading uh, relatively happy lives, although maybe the pain keeps them from doing some of the things that they enjoy or curtails their activity in some way. But, um, but chronic pain as a general public health condition affects a huge number of people. And then the line on that graph tells us the societal cost. When you think about the number of work days that have been lost, even when I show up to work, if I'm hurting, my productivity is lower. That has an economic cost. The cost of health care for treating pain is mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many people are surprised to hear that the cost of pain exceeds the combined costs of cancer, AIDS, and heart disease. Now, I have a question. That's that's staggering. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. Um, and, and, of course, I want to point out, again, um, what you had mentioned earlier. This isn't, you know, I, I had a catastrophic knee injury, you know, a little more than a year ago. If you were to, you know, come up and ask me a question that would end up on that graph, the pain I'm experiencing at that point as an injury, that's not what we're talking about here necessarily, right? Right. Um, Chronic pain is typically defined as pain experience on most days for at least the last three months, depending on the study, maybe the last six months. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are having pain most of the time. Um, some of them are having tremendous impacts on their daily lives, high impact pain. And not only that, you said that, of, and, and could we look at that, the reference one more time? So of, of this bar on the far right, this nearly one-third of all people, in this 100,000 people, or 100 million people, excuse me, their brains could be changing as a result of this pain while they're experiencing it. Sure, sure. Whether it be for a few months or a few decades. Right. So what are some of the implications for that? I mean, that, that seems to be, so it's not just the pain that they're experiencing, but this is, like, this is you know, physically and, and fundamentally altering them, not just, not just how it Im impacts their day-to-day -day routine, but, but them physically, and then all of the processes that are related to the brain. Yeah, and we're beginning to appreciate more and more the organismic consequences of pain. The, 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 it doesn't just feel bad to have pain. It takes its toll on your physical health. You mentioned the brain, uh, neurodegeneration of the brain. That's clearly been demonstrated. Um, aging, cellular aging. Other folks in Price that I suspect you'll end up talking to, Dr. Sibyl, Dr. Cruz Almeida, have done work showing that pain ages the body, or at least people with pain uh, have shorter telomeres and they show epigenetic changes that suggest that biologically they're older than their pain-free counterparts. Um, and other studies have been done now in large national types of samples showing that pain is associated with earlier mortality. Hmm. Okay, so 
pain can kill. There was an editorial written on that uh, decades ago, and, and it appears to be true that pain hastens death, um, especially when pain is more widespread and severe. So pain has tremendous consequences uh, for us biologically and in terms of our physical health. It's not just let's help people get out of pain so they feel better. Let's help people get out of pain so they can maintain their health, so they can live. So some of my volleyball buddies that, you know, are, are into their 40s or so, or even, I guess some of them even complain, you know, in their mid-30s, oh man, I woke up feeling 70 years old this morning. There may be more truth to that than, than we're giving credence. Yes, yes indeed. Wow. Pain can make us feel older and it looks like it can make us be older uh, mm. as well. Mm. Um, so, so circling back to the center, so um, given the magnitude of pain as a public health problem, it makes sense that focusing some efforts on understanding pain better and developing better approaches to diagnosis and treatment would be a good idea. And here at UF, we already had a pretty large group of people studying pain. Um, and so several years ago with the support of uh, our College of Dentistry, as well as our Clinical and Translational Science Institute, we started PRICE, the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence, to be um, sort of a home for people studying pain across the UF campus, right? So pain doesn't have a department. Um, the, very rarely will you go to an institution and there's a department of pain. Should there be? That's another question altogether. <laughs> okay. um, Please continue. <laughs> and, and so the people here at UF who are working on pain research are scattered across at least eight different colleges, dozens of different departments. And so we're not all housed together. So Price was meant to be at least a virtual space where we could all come together uh, share our mutual interests, promote collaborations, have training activities, uh, support early career uh, scientists who are interested in pain. So, so that's sort of what a center is. I appreciate that last part for the record. Yes, Thank you for, for uh, yes indeed. And so um, a center is meant to uh, connect people across disciplines, across departments, um, and it's it's focused on a given theme. Of course, our theme is pain. Uh, and, and so that's why we formed Price. Uh, it's, you know, we've been very happy with uh, all of the great people we've been able to bring in and train and who are uh, continuing to go on and do great things. Um, but it, it gives us sort of this um, core uh, of activity mm -hmm. that helps promote more activity and more research and more collaboration and it gets people talking to each other who don't run into each other in departmental meetings because mm -hmm. they're not in the same department right, right, uh, right. and so it creates sort of interdisciplinary collaborations which tend to make the best science so it, it in this case a center is it's not a, a generic term it, it's a legitimate binding at least think of it as an organization within an organization. Is that right? Yes. So, so, you, yeah. so all of these individual scientists are not reinventing the wheel when it comes to pain, and, and you can actually get a cohesive idea of, of what 
pain is and how it affects people. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's an act. It's a recognized entity within our university right. um, that's meant to span departments and colleges and bring people together who have mutual interests in this topic of pain. Okay. All right. Um, so, I guess you know, in, in the time that we have left, we've we've done a lot of looking back, and only very recently uh, have you detailed, you know, what's going on right now, at least with price. So let's take a moment and talk. Now, I, I'll, I plan on, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, having a multitude of researchers from Price and, you know, affiliated with Price and from other institutions on this podcast. So I want to take a moment and talk about what your role is at the time now. And and that can be, I mean, and, and I'm going to leave you a little bit of wiggle room here. Um, you know, I'd like to talk about current research, but also, you know, that sounds like a really big undertaking, this center. And as director, I struggle to believe that no matter how efficient you are at leading and directing or researching, that there has to be some kind of bias in, in your day-to-day. -day. You know, how, how do you manage these things? Do you, do you still conduct research at this point? Um, you know, what's yeah. your day like? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I do have my own research program. It primarily focuses around racial and ethnic differences in pain uh, and pain among older adults. So those are sort of the areas we're focused on. Um, we're, we're doing an intervention study now, which you know well, uh, trying to uh, implement targeted interventions that we think might help reduce some of the racial and ethnic disparities we see in people with knee osteoarthritis. Um, and so that study is ongoing. I have a great team that helps to run that project. Um, so continuing my research is sort of one part of what I do. And then in terms of price, trying to put things in place that will help other researchers, whether they're graduate students or postdocs or whether they're full professors who are thriving, um, but just to provide resources and infrastructure and collaborative opportunities to help people move their own research programs forward. As part of that, we have educational programs that we, uh, that we run in prize journal clubs, um, seminar series, data blitzes, things like that, um, which are also opportunities for people to accidentally bump into each other and develop collaborations. Uh, and so I sort of split my time between uh, running my research program uh, with the assistance of a great team, um, helping to oversee the activities and prize, also supported by other faculty as well as trainees. Uh, and then I spend a fair amount of time on mentoring to help support the, the next generation of pain scientists who are going to carry this work forward and who really bring the energy and the and the intellectual horsepower and the new ideas to keep things moving forward. So, you know, those sort of three areas are where I divide my time. How much of each area gets my time each day sort of depends on what's going on, but those are my main foci right now. You say three areas, but that sounds like a lot of plates to keep spinning <laughs> over the course of time. Uh, yeah, but it's just the right amount. Okay. All just right. the right amount. So, so what is, just 
you know, to stay on this for just a moment, um, what are some of the big challenges when it comes to, to, to keeping a machine like Price not only working, but but benefiting and contributing, and, and, and what does that look like? What, is it, what does it mean for price to, to be useful? Mm-hmm. That's probably the biggest challenge, is what does it mean for price to be useful? The answer to that question differs so much for different stakeholders, right? Uh, what a graduate student needs for price to be useful is very different than what uh, a basic scientist in the College of Pharmacy needs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, And and so there are a lot of different things that we could do. If time and money were unlimited, we would do them all, but I've not found either of those to be (laughs) unlimited yet. Um, So, uh, you know, understanding the needs of our stakeholders and constituents uh, is one of the challenges. And, And, you know, resources is another challenge. Everything takes time and money. Uh, And then finally, everybody's really busy, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to create programs or ask people to come give a seminar, it takes time from the other things uh, that are placing demands on people's time. So you sort of have to balance that. You want to be helpful without being burdensome, and there's sort of a fine balance to strike there. So now how about for the person that's listening? You mentioned knee osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. What about the person that's, you know, kicking back in their recliner and having to move every couple minutes because their knee hurts like it has for the last 20 years mm-hmm. as they're dealing with their knee osteoarthritis? What is Price doing for them? How, you know, we, we hear a lot about research and, um, you know, some people may not realize, that, you know, there, there are different types of research. You know, what, what Price is doing isn't necessarily you know, what's going on in a lab that's looking at a specific protein expression and one type of cell in the body that, you know, there's a a long way between that and and maybe something that could affect somebody that's listening right now. When it comes to price, I'm sure there's a spectrum Mm -hmm. of of research that's going on that that may be useful by combining it with something else and then applied by a third party. What's close right now that, that price does that that could be within one step or already is within one step of benefiting the layperson, the the patient. Yeah, and of course with research, there are different types of research. Um, Some studies are designed to try to understand more about a condition so that we can then figure out better ways to treat it, right? Mm -hmm. If your car is not functioning and you take it to the mechanic and say, I don't want you to diagnose it. I just want you to fix it, right? (laughs) Just do the thing that fixes cars. That doesn't work, right? You have to understand what the problem is in order to fix it. And, And unfortunately, in many instances in pain, we don't understand enough about what's causing the pain that people are experiencing. So we need more research to help us uh, move forward. So those kinds of studies may not help uh, patients directly, uh, but it will provide some societal benefit. And the hope is that over time, how much time remains to be seen, but over time that those kinds of studies will help people uh, and by turning into new treatments. Now, we do have other studies ongoing in price that are clinical trials where we're testing different interventions, um, 
we tend to do those clinical trials because we're not sure either whether something works or how it works. Or uh, who it might work on specifically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so when you come in as a, as a research participant into a clinical trial, you never know whether it's going to help you or not. But some of those studies uh, probably do end up helping people and they feel better uh, in the short term. And they're also contributing to knowledge and to helping us move forward so that we can make that treatment work better and maybe even develop other related treatments that'll work even better in the future. Um, so those are the things uh, that are going on, and there are always new studies coming online. As I've said, we, there are a lot of people here at UF doing pain research and, and very creative and smart people uh, coming up with new ideas all the time. So if you don't find something to your liking today, come back tomorrow and, and see what might be on tap. Right. And Well, and, you know, that, that brings up an important point. There may be people listening that have access to University of Florida that are nearby or even in the region. Is it possible for people that are interested in participating in research to contact Price in order to make themselves av available for such? Is there a way to do that? Uh, yeah, so you can go to our website, price.ctsi.ufl.edu. I think I got that right. Sounds right. Um, and uh, you can find some descriptions of some of our studies, and there will be some contact information there if you want to get in touch with, with people. But we certainly would invite that. And then I guess maybe in closing, the, the question that's, that's tapping me on the shoulder is, if you could get out your crystal ball, or if you could look just over the horizon when it comes to pain research, where is everything headed? I mean, and this is a, clearly you know, a non-binding comment, but just from your perspective now, whether it's your personal interest or, or what you see emerging in the field, what do you think, what are we knocking on the door of at this point in, in, in pain research? Yeah, so I think, and this isn't just in pain research, but I think it certainly applies to pain research, that sort of personalized medicine is what's coming, how quickly, I'm not sure. Uh, but what I mean by that is um, changing our thinking from how do we treat somebody with knee osteoarthritis to how do we treat Mrs. Jones, who has knee osteoarthritis and is 63 years old and is of this race and sex and has these other comorbid conditions, and maybe has this genetic background and these psychological uh, characteristics and so on and so forth. So that's what we're all trying to work toward is understanding the various characteristics that people bring with them that influence how they experience pain and how they respond to pain treatments so that we can then exploit that information to find the perfect treatment for that person's pain. That's the goal, right? Um, technology is advancing, um, mathematics, artificial intelligence, all the things that you hear about uh, in the lay public, those things are being applied to medicine and to pain research. 
so things are going to move forward quickly. I just hope that it's quickly enough uh, for people to benefit. That still sounds like quite a tall order. The, the nuance of, of individuality between people is seemingly limitless. So Yes, you're right. But that's good job security, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking a minute to sit down and talk to me. Hopefully, uh, those of you that, that tuned in and listened, um, you know, if you're interested in participating in research, I'll, I'll repeat that, uh, that process for getting in touch with Dr. Fillingham and Price uh, in general later. Um, but just want to thank you for uh, sitting down and having a chat. Great. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram. <laughs>